nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the Pickup app today. That's PKUP and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. You're listening to V8 Insiders. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, and we've got a triumvirate of great drivers, warriors from the uh, recent past, that being John Bow, John Faulkner and Jason Bright. Each two of them in their own way carved a career through the things that used to be known as V8 Supercars, before they became Supercars, V8, 5 litres. They each had their own little ways in which getting there. Uh, for instance, with Jason Bright, it was uh, competing in America and potentially an IndyCar career. With John Bow, of course, it was uh, competing in open wheelers first, then uh, sports cars, touring cars, and of course, many batters. And John Faulkner, of course, was uh, started out in uh, the Tiddler class in, at Bathurst in Corollas and Escort, then climbed into V8, and then NASCAR before he made the jump into the uh, Touring Car Championship. Welcome on board to Jason Bright. Hey mate, thank you very much. Glad to have you on board. John Bow. Hi Tone, yeah, it's great. It's great to be uh, talking to somebody that's uh, motorsport orientated <laughs> rather than the, the household. <laughs> and of course, John Faulkner up on the Gold Coast. Yeah, hi guys, just me and the dog, so anything new today will be good. Okay, we've gathered these three men because they know what motor racing is. They knew what it was to race in the Australian Touring Car Championship. And I'm sure that each of them has their own ideas about what they think the next car should be, next generation of supercars should be. And first of all, let's start off with John Bauer. Tell us, JB, what do you think the next car should be? Uh, well, I um, I think they needed a next car. That's point one. Um, there's the, the Mustang doesn't that's currently used doesn't even look like a Mustang and the, the Commodore doesn't exist anymore and never existed as a as a VA car in reality. But I'm uh, the main thing I've got against it is the pedal shift thing. I, I just I've driven plenty of cars with pedal shifts, GT cars for ten or fifteen years, and it, it uh, it's too easy, you know. And I, I think our premier category should be more difficult. So that's my biggest beef with it always to whether they can prioritise the cars or the engines or whatever. Well, I mean, that's, I'm not close enough to it to judge on that. But uh, I don't think, I, I really strongly believe they shouldn't have battle shoes. John Faulkner, you uh, spent some time building your own cars after initially starting with a Walkinshaw car. You would have fair idea as to what's involved in building it. Do you think it should be along the lines they're going? Oh, de- definitely not. I mean, I sort of agree with JB in a, in a lot of respects, but I would prefer a completely different car. To me, we need to see more people racing. I'm getting sick of the same sort of winners, the high-budget teams. Um, everyone's a triple-eight customer at that end, or, again, Holden and Ford aren't really there. 
uh, I think lots of merit for a total change. Like to me, it's I'd like to see like a TA2 version, you know, something that's 150, 200 grand. And our first car, JFR, we built with Barry Ryan, $300,000. And, um, yeah, it was ridiculous back then, 1999, 1998. Jason Bright, um, looking at uh, things as, as you were a two car uh, team owner at one stage, um, lower cost would have been, you know, obviously something that you would put high on your agenda to, to have happen. Do you think that the, the, the way they're going is going to lead to that? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think that it's going to reduce the cost as much as what, you know, we would all hope. I mean, I think you know, as far as motorsport goes, the, 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 the lower the cost, the, you know, the more teams have got to spend on, you know, personnel and, and drivers and making sure there's, you know, as many professional drivers in this category as possible. And I think that was one of the, the strengths of supercars, you know, in that late nineties, early two thousands period was, you know, the, the money you could sort of generate in advertising dollars equaled what you needed to run a car and employ professional drivers. And, um, you know, I thought that was probably, you know, where we probably learned, should have learned a lot from that sort of era. Um, you know, you didn't need ridiculous budgets to put cars on the grid. And and certainly these days, you know, the, you do need a pretty big budget. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of a little bit in agreement with John, you know, going to something that, that is a lot cheaper would be very good for the teams and you know I don't think it would impact the show a lot I think the show would probably get better but it's you know I can also understand from the teams and you know that are out there you know making a cool car and going racing with a lot of technology is a lot of fun as well but you know whether that's right for the series it's, it's hard to say I mean I think there's some areas where you know they've got it right I've always been you know I thought for quite a while that we need to move to a race car that's a bit sort of sexier and a bit more aspirational than, you know, the four-door family car, um, you know. So I think that part of it's certainly heading in the right direction and it, you know, can potentially attract better brands, you know, to the to the series because, you know, racing against family cars in the past wasn't going to attract the, the type of brands that they wanted in the series. So... There's parts that are right, um, but you know, I don't think they're going to reduce the cost a hell of a lot by going about it the way they are. John, Jason brought up an interesting point there, technology and and really uh, experienced technology, high technology cars like you, of course, raced in uh, Nations Cup and, and GT. Obviously, they're fun, but does all that technology make one iota of difference to a spectator who wants to see good close racing? Uh, not really, I don't think so. I mean, JF's view of TA2 as a, a, a replacement is probably quite rational, I think. And, you know, if you were... Uh, not The team owners get all excited about this technology, but it doesn't really matter to the bloke on the street and it doesn't really matter to the eyeballs in front of the, in front of the television. But they've gone so far down the road with this new Gen 3 thing I can't see them turn back, to be honest. It's, um, you know, I think a, a, a high-level TA2 version would, with their existing transaxle and stuff in it would probably be a pretty good car and relatively cheap. But, you know, I mean, I don't sit on the board of supercars, nor do I have a huge amount to do with them. So I don't know what drove their process this, this way, but I, I also 
agree with Jason Bright that it, uh, I can't see it being that much cheaper, to be honest. That's something that people who've listened to our previous show um, would have heard from guys like Peter Wallace and also Steve Dewhurst, who uh, joined us, and they said they didn't see where the savings were coming from either. But John Faulkner, you, like the other two mates here, have all raced on oval tracks. You've had, and in your case, you've had teams that raced oval and road racing. Do you think that road racing and, and supercars hasn't taken that opportunity to see how the oval boys do it and the advantages and and opportunities by keeping it simple? I, I think they really have mirrored. They've taken a lot from NASCAR, um, pit strategy and tyre changes, refuelling and all that. At the end of the day, what makes NASCAR exciting is the crowd can sit on one seat, see the whole circuit, and there's you know, 40, 50 cars. Bathurst used to be like that. I like racing against 30, 40 cars. It's great. You know, this 24 cars we've got now... Every weekend, it just you know, it's only the same six different winners or something. Um, yeah, I look, I, I, I'm not going to push TA2, I don't know enough about it, but, but they look fantastic and they just you know, they're under $200,000, and I can't see why they're being pushed down this road of Gen 3. They can't even give us a decision. The racing isn't going to be happening for a while with the COVID, obviously, but. Um, paddle shift like JB dead against it. I want to see drivers, you know, the best driver win. You know, it's become a pit stop strategy. Uh, tire derogation would be good, less downforce, all that. We all know that. We all want to make them move around a bit and see good driving. Look at Craig Lowndes now in the course. nowhere. He's got paddle shift and all the gadgets, and he's, uh, he's racing against kids. Kids that started racing in carts looked at millimetres on the track, millimetres. Uh, when me and JB and Bridie started, you know, you'd look at feet and metres, but these guys are so good. You know, they just, it's the same, they can't pass. And I think that's where Gen 3 is going to head, even without downfall. Jason, you've been racing, or you most recently have been racing in TCR. How do you find the parity and the balance of performance that they had to try and set up across so many different types of cars, engine configurations and the like? Well, I think that's, you know, it's obviously hard comparing different categories. I mean, the one thing TA, oh, sorry, um, TCR has done quite well is, you know, they've got 12 or 13 different manufacturers in there. They've all got different strengths and weaknesses, which, you know, you know two manufacturer category would be very hard to manage. You know, you would end up with the same winners all the time. So, whereas in TCR, it sort of does share around a bit on different circuits. The thing that I do like about TCR is, you know, the, the, they punch a pretty hole, pretty big hole in the air and they haven't got a lot of power. So you get, you know, slipstreaming, you get, you know, a lot of good racing out of it. Um, the tyres do degrade, you know, a reasonable amount. Um, and that's where I think supercars can certainly do a lot more, you know, with tyre degradation and making a lot more strategy out of it. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest thing that, that uh, you know, that, that could improve their racing. You know, you know I, think, I don't think a, tire, a set of tyres should last a full tank of fuel as easily as what it does. Um, and as, as soon as a, a set of tyres can last easily like, the, like they do at the moment, um, you know, then you can pit at the start of a fuel window and 
the guys that are taking a different strategy can't pass you. It just you know, it eliminates all strategy, unfortunately. So, um, you know, and then there's other issues with, you know, they're starting only sort of three quarters full and, you know, then that means that if, if a safety car comes lap one, you have to pit. So there's, there's a lot of little things that I think that they could do better and, you know, to, to make the racing a lot better at the moment. John Bow, your touring car master's experience would have shown you that you've got your fan base and your fans that love certain things about those cars and uh, there's quite a disparity of performance and appearance in them across that uh, field. Yeah, different. different. It's, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's amateur racing, though, and it's just blokes having a good time in cars that have got too much power for the grip. Um, you know, supercars is a pro category. That's why I make the point that they need to be difficult to drive. Uh, on the point Jace made about tie deg and things, the, the problem with that to some degree is the tie companies that support it or the tyre company that supports it don't want to see their tyres fall into bits after eight laps because it sends a bad message out to the to the public. So they're yeah, using tyres and pit stop strategies and fuel loads and all that sort of stuff is, to me, not that interesting. And I don't know whether I'm your regular viewer or not or your regular race goer. So there's, there's some, a lot of issues to fix up. Um, which I, I certainly am not smart enough to do it, but uh, it needs it needs addressing because we all want to watch really good racing with all sorts of blokes going at it, you know. And it used to be like that, didn't it? I mean, it used to. Interesting, um, as you'd be all aware that uh, it, it's highly likely that the supercars business is going to change hands before Christmas. Um, and one of the things that's recently broken cover is the potential where the teams may no longer have a share and a voice. Um, JF, uh, this uh, would mean that uh, you don't have at the end of your time in a sport that ability to sell that. It was certainly something that was very attractive about the franchise system as it was. Yeah, but, you know, we're uh, we're a victim of all this as well, and we sort of headed in this direction to where we are now. I'd quite frankly, like to take the decision out of the team owners because it's just added cost no matter what. I've been on committees and helped in the supercar era when we're all trying to cost cut, but it's hard to talk a bloke that had 11 engines out of changing an engine brand as against a guy that only owned two. So we're our own worst enemy. I think if someone wants to march this up to a board level with a potential buyer, and they make smart decisions, then, you know, they're in the entertainment business, obviously, if there's football companies and media moguls all trying to purchase it. Um, And obviously they've got smart people that used to motor race in the background to give them the right decisions. I can't see why it just can't get bigger and better, but not at the cost. We can't sustain the cost. I I don't know of a company in Australia that can afford, you know, $6 million a car now they want. Um, it's just not going to last. COVID has probably been a bit lucky. People haven't been spending the money, but when it gets back to full time, no one can sustain those sort of levels required. Mm, definitely agree with you, mate. Jase, I'd be right in thinking that you sold out of the business by the time Archers had come in. Would that be correct? 
no, no, no. I still had my, I still had one license when Archer came in. Um, you know, and I think the license has been, you know, and, and that system has worked well for supercars. You know, for the period that it's been there, no doubt. I mean, I, I you know, one of the challenges with motorsport, and you know, you see in a lot of other categories around the world, is you know, teams come and go. And that can be, you know, the demise of the category when, you know, enough teams leave. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's made teams stick around and make it happen, you know, when times are tough and, and it's benefited teams when times are good. Um, so I think it's served supercars very well. It's served the teams well. Um, it's served it well in finding a buyer because without the teams, you know, you wouldn't be able to find a buyer. Um, you know, I haven't seen what the, you know, what commercial opportunity there is going forward if, um, you know, if someone buys it and the teams don't own any part of the series, but there would need to be something in place to make sure that, you know, the teams are incentivized to hang around, obviously. So, you know, so that the new buyer has got a, a series and teams to go with it. So, um, you know, how they sort of structure all that, you know, remains to be seen. JB, of course, you through your time didn't own a team, but were a hired driver and drove for three or four different teams over your time. What do you think the way in which the franchise system operated? Well, I, I, I was never interested in owning a team, mate, because I saw all the headaches that it brought. A lot of those were dollar headaches. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean... Friday makes a good point there, but uh, but it doesn't because the teams won't have a say in it. Uh, doesn't mean they won't still get the funding because without the funding that they get now, even though it's not a budget, it still helps them race. So uh, I think the reason people are trying to encourage them these are people that are buying the category if they do buy the category. Why they're trying to encourage the teams to not own a part of it is so that they don't have so much influence. There are some very powerful people in the category that have more influence than other people and they tend to lead the the, uh, the journey along the way they want it to go. So I think for it to survive, it would be much better if the teams didn't have a, a say in that side of it. But of course they need the remuneration to, that they get now. That's what keeps quite a lot of them going. But, I, you know, will we ever know all the details behind this deal? Possibly not. No, it's like the uh, the duck on the pond, of course, the uh, feet under the water are paddling like hell, and who knows how many uh, strokes per second they're doing. JF, you're in a different position. Um, you ended up selling your franchises, and, you know, there was an awful amount of controversy around that time, and it was a fairly ugly period, in fact, for you. It, if not cost you physically a lot of money because of it uh, certainly cost some people their jobs, the end of the franchise system will make a big difference. I mean, one of the things it could do is mean that we will uh, open up so that far more teams could get into it. The Matty Whites, the Terry Wyhoons, the Ben Eggleson, they could all make the jump up so that we wouldn't have that elite group of 24, but it might actually be what you talked about, the 40-car grid. Oh, absolutely. It still has... Relevant. I, I remember going to meetings back in the day when there was that elite 13 and 
you know, I remember Brad Jones and Ellery's and, and a few other, Morris, and then we were working out ways to stop them from getting into the category and divvying up the pie. You know, it was a very select group. It still is. And licenses became, you know, very, very valuable. Um, but unless you, like level one, committed to 100% of all races, that was your commitment. Level two, you know, 60 or 70% took a bit of the pressure off. But so did the monetary system of it. So me selling my licenses and doing a, you know, shifty with Holm and getting young lines and, you know, I was at the end, I was 54 in my last Bathurst and I, I ran against JB then and, and I was just, you know, been there too long. I'd rather be running a team than driving in it. And I think all about that era, we all quit. Larry, Dick, me, Speedo, JB, you know, we're all just getting a bit too old for that sort of stuff. So running running a team was, you know, had a lot more opportunity in it. And the franchise system, I think, was good, but it, it became a flyaway team. They dropped a number of cars. You know, 30, 40, 50 cars at Bathurst, they were fabulous racing. You know, privateers, um, different tyre manufacturers, it just fattened up all the racing, made it very, very interesting. Um, I was glad to get out of the, you know, the system and get a fine taken, you know, off me after three years. It took me to get the money back, but that's the that's the shitty side of scissor cars. really hurt me to this day. I really, I don't think I've been to a meeting. I don't feel welcome. So the system hurt me. Uh, but it, it did, and I think take all that away from the teams. Let's introduce more of them, more drivers, more more broader range of cars that make it cheaper. Otherwise, it can't sustain itself. Jase, one of the things, of course, that you just caught the very tail end of was the tyre wars. You uh, made your debut with Gary Rogers at Simmons Plains back in a time when uh, they had a uh, Bridgestone contract. I think you were on their wet when you went out. Is that correct? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that worked really well, actually. Because um, <laughs> it was, it was uh, the, the, the Bridgestone wet was certainly the thing to have. And I think there was only, you know, four, four or five cars that had the Bridgestone wet. So yeah, as far as debuts go, I timed it extremely well. JB, of course, the whole world changed the moment the tyre contract was handed, first of all, to Bridgestone. And suddenly you were running on the tyre, not quite the tyre that you know, you'd wanted to be on, but it was certainly a, a Bridgestone to start with. That was an amazing time, wasn't it, uh, when you, it was a controlled tyre for the first time? Yeah, it probably was. You know, I found it very interesting when there were three or more tyre manufacturers because, you know, one day you'd have a Bridgestone would, would be better on certain track and another time a Dunlop would be better and another time a Yokohama would be better. So as, you know, an enthusiast, I thought it was good. The only problem with that downside is that you have the haves and the have-nots. So the better teams got the better tyres. So for a sport, a control tyre was a way better thing. But me personally, I found it very interesting. We used to do lots of tyre testing and it was fun and, you know, I mean, I race now because it's fun, and I, I actually always have, to be honest. The fact that I earned a living out of it there for a while was probably a bonus. Jason, to start now, with so much restriction on testing and so much of a restriction to get into the car, ignoring COVID, how do you think young drivers, are they getting hampered to be able to get up to speed in this sport? Uh, it, it is tough, for sure, and you know, obviously the, 
you know, they've got things in place for rookies to get extra practice time and extra test days. You know, I, I think that they all, you know, use that as well as they can, including, you know, the, the, um, you know, rookie days and there's other test days they can do and shakedown days. So trust me, they all, they all get plenty of miles still. Um, but yeah, it is, it is tougher than it used to be. I mean, you know, going back to when I first got in, I think, you know, the limit was 12 test days a year. Um, you know, it was, it was sort of just at the end of the, you know, the tyre wars. I think the first year I got in there, um, each tyre manufacturer had to nominate a tyre that could do the whole year um, before it went to the control Bridgestone. So, yeah, it was, um, you know, like John said, it was, you know, you, you did do a lot more running and certainly when I was racing in America, you did a lot of test days, but, you know, that's the way motorsport is now. I mean, it's no different, you know, all the way through the Formula 1. It's one of the things that is probably hurting, you know, Daniel Ricciardo this year, just the fact that, you know, the testing restrictions are so tight and the amount of practice you get at the race meeting. So it is, it is a challenge. I think Supercars does a bit of what they can in the sense that giving those guys those rookie days and rookie practice, you know, extra practice to, to try and get them up to speed. Yeah, you had at least two or three years maybe more, under the uh, Bridgestone tyre before the control tyre came in. It wasn't so much an advantage for you because your cars were built to, to run the Bridgestone and you were able to secure supply, but it was a big change when suddenly you were on a uh, the same level as everybody else. Do you not feel that? Uh, yeah, we, just to make it clear, we never got the full factory Bridgestone. We were classed as privateers when I purchased my car. And we tried to run it on Dunlops and, you know, no power steering and it was just a peak. But we were getting, I think, Glenn's front or steer tyre or a drive tyre and, it was, you know, there's little options that these factory teams had that we never knew about. And I imagine Dunlop within their, you know, bigger teams had a little bit more preference over the quality of tyre. But when we went to control uh, Bridgestone, um, yeah, I think it suited our car and, you know, the more we could test, the better it got and we, we learned all these little intricacies. But I think there were the days of bleed-offs from memory, those horrible bloody things they brought in and, you know, you, you could be almost in the top 10 and have a tyre deflating on and you just, you just knew you weren't going to finish, you know. I'm glad they got rid of those things. If I can just take us to the point that John Bow made earlier, Jason, that the cars have more power than grip. Is that something that should be the number one priority for supercars in a new car? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, if the cars are harder to drive, then, you know, it does, you know, it does make it a better spectacle. You know, I think once again, it comes down to a, a, having a, a level of tyre degradation, you know, probably not to the point where the tyres look like they're, hopeless but they're at least it's at least enough to create a you know some different strategies um you know and and whether that's because the cars have got too much power or you know there's limits on what you can do suspension wise you know there's ways you can sort of manufacture that degradation but um you know yeah i think making the cars a bit more difficult to drive would be a good thing. But I think the cream will still rise to the top because the, the good teams, if, if it's, you know, they'll still have the, 
the better money to go out there and do the best development. Um, so that, that's where it sort of comes back to having rules that limit that development. That's what supercars did well for a long time, you know, having rules that kept the, the running costs below what, um, you know, below what you could sort of raise in a, in out of a budget. But now it's like, you know, there's only certain teams that can afford to do the right sort of development, I feel. And JF, did you ever have a situation where you couldn't follow someone? We hear from Shane Van Gisbergen quite often about, I can't get up behind someone to be able to even start to set up a passing move. <laughs> no, never, never that good at supercars. Uh, mass car, yes, you could move someone around at high speed, but uh, not in, not really in supercar. I don't. Um, I've had many, many run through the chase, you know, two inches off Larry and guys like that, and you know, never really noticed a difference. Uh, we very rarely played with our wing. Never had the horsepower. We always got around as far as we could. John, you you certainly went from high downforce to low downforce when you first made the switch from open wheelers to touring cars and then you saw that downforce coming in gradually to the point where when you finished up it was a downforce category. Well the the cars I drove didn't have excessive downforce I didn't think but I watch now the cars this current car Gen 2 or whatever you call it and I think they've got quite a lot more downforce than the things we drove anyway. I didn't think, I never had any real disturbance following cars closely either. They had, uh, you had to, you have to have it a little bit, otherwise the things would take off. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just had this great idea. I'd like to see what you blokes think about it. When they go to super soft and soft tyres, say, both those tyres those degrade to some degree. Why don't they just give every race meeting, give them, if they're going to give them 20 tyres, give them 10 of each and let them use them when they want to. They always stipulate what you're allowed to use, which means everybody goes around at the same speed, give or take a bit. But when you shake it up, you know, someone might save his super soft tyres to look good in one race rather than try and plan for the weekend and you get some different results out of that. I don't know why they stipulate so much. It's like fuel drops. You know, if your car's good on fuel, that's your good luck, isn't it? And the Nissans obviously weren't that good on fuel, so the fuel rigs were made for the Nissans. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think there's been a little bit of that. You know, there's been rounds where, you know, we've had soft tyre and hard tyre and, you know, if you sort of limit it too much and, and they've only got the one set of softs like they do sometimes, you know, you basically pick a day where you're going to go well and you pick the day where you're going to suck. And that that's not good for anyone. Um, you know, no, I, I mean 50-50 though, you know, like have half super soft, half soft or half hard and half soft or whatever, you know. So you've got, you can't, you just got a bit of choice. Like, it, you know, we used to, back in the day, you used to have a steer tyre and a drive tyre. And then once we had control tyres, you had, they were all the same, front and back. Yep. So, bit of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, think, you know, I, only just, yeah. I only just thought of it. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the tyres are the biggest thing. I think, you know, one, one of the challenges with, you know, supercars is, you know, you, you don't really get a slipstream. So, you know, you don't really gain a lot 
you know, to the point where you're going to be able to pull out and pass another car. So, you know, you need, you know, a second or a second and a half advantage to be able to even be start to making a move a lot of the times. Um, and the other way to get that is through the tyre degradation. And so, you know, and, and too many, you know, you see too many races where they just play that game and, and um, you know, they know that stopping at the start of the window gets them the track position or keeps the track position. And, and then everyone, what you end up with is, you know, for the first 15 laps, everyone's got pretty much exactly the same tyre for the first 15 laps and then they all change tyres and everyone's got the same tyre for the, for the, you know, even though they are degrading, because they can do a full stint and they know that no one's going to be able to pass them even if they stop later or they're not going to be able to work their way through, no one even takes that risk of pitting late. Um, and so I'm not, you know, it's not even so much that they, you know, have to degrade that much that you can't make a full tank of juice. They just need to degrade by a couple of seconds. Um, and, and if they do that, then people will take the risk of going long. Um, but at the moment, it's too big a risk because they might not be able to work their way back through. JF, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I agree that I would never have a car on soft and another car on hard in the same race because we've seen that guys get podiums either late last year or this year, I think it was late last year, that we're a bit surprised they're on a podium, you know, and it's like racing the guy that's got a puncher. You know, the difference was huge. They were using indicators, you know, just, yeah, pass me, pass me, you know, I'm a dead duck, I'm on hard, you're on soft or... And that wasn't racing. That as a driver, I would have the shit if that happened to me. I always have been a a fan, John Bow, of having a much smaller tank. If you've got a thirty lap race, you should only have a tank that can go eight laps, and uh, then you've really got to do some strategy. Yeah, I guess you know. I mean, <laughs> there's a good argument for that too, mate. I suppose um, we had Formula One for many years and. Group C sports cars for many years that were fuel economy categories, you know, and they used to complain about that. So, look, I, I don't pretend to know all the answers, but uh, I think, you know, the, the reason we're going to have Gen Three is twofold: is it's needs to be more relevant to a to a the look of a, a car, and it needs to be considerably cheaper because uh, the points you made earlier about the cost uh, it's it's a very expensive category for a country this size anyway with this population so I don't know how they're going to do it they reckon they're going to save a fortune on the engines but I'm not so sure that's the fact either. One piece of news obviously in the last few days has uh, been the Belgian Grand Prix and first off we'll talk to uh, you Jace about uh, what you think of a two lap Grand Prix. Yeah it was, it was a little bit disappointing I mean it was shaping up to be a, a pretty cracking race when you know when you see the grid but um you know i yeah i i don't really agree with the you know being awarded as a grand prix you know obviously it's a um you know they've done a lot of the hard work to 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 go through practice and qualifying and and determine that order but you know i think there's plenty of occasions where that wouldn't have equated to to being a grand prix win um you know like i said it was more of a shame that we didn't get to, to to see a race that was shaping up to be a really good race, and you know, a wet, dry race at Spa would have been a would have been a cracker. JB, 
Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there were political and financial reasons for it to be declared a race, but, you know, two laps behind a safety car in the rain to me doesn't represent a race, especially a Grand Prix. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's absolute madness, but I'm sure there's a reason they didn't want to give the money back for a start. So <laughs> there's reasons behind it, I reckon, that uh, yeah, dollars. Oh, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Just found it embarrassing. So. I don't really have much of an opinion on it. Just can't believe that Formula One can get to that stage with such a mass televised audience. The thing I'd like to do now is I'm giving you a question without notice, but uh, you're all vastly experienced and have a great deal of knowledge of this business. Um, I've just been standing in pit lane, you know, occasionally getting into a passenger seat. So I'd like your, your final comments on you know, what Gen 3, the next generation of car. First off, Jason, your final comment on what it could be. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd certainly like to see something that, you know, is more like a sports car, like something they're in the right direction there. Um, I think, you know, making them a simpler car for both the teams, you know, to, to be able to run more, um, you know, economically and, and uh, you know, be able to spend money in the right areas rather than on a bunch of components that no one really cares about. Um, you know, so like a TA2, but, you know, a little bit upspect of TA2 I think would be great. You know, something that moves around a bit, something that is a little bit harder to drive, I think is, uh, you know, I think like the guys said, that, that's sort of all the right track. But, yeah, it needs to be, I think the biggest factor is they need to knock a lot of cost out of it. So, you know, so that we end up with, a lot better racing than what we're getting at the moment. John Bow? Yeah, I, I uh, think they should be difficult to drive, probably more difficult to drive than they are now, and they, they have to be cheaper. That's the whole reason for it, I think. So that's pretty two fairly good reasons. And JF? Uh, pretty much the same as um, John and Jace. Uh, they should be, you know, half the cost, easier to maintain, a lot less budget required. Definitely a gear stick. Um, yeah, it needs to be a driver's race, not so much a technician's race. Um, although I am a big, am hugely in favour of, and it's so simple, and it just looks really good on paper. A TA2 with you know maybe an eight thousand RPM type engine, um, which is still going to make it under two hundred grand, um, and lots of them. I think one of the things that uh, so pleased me in the last couple of years is the development of the S5000. And JB, I know, or both JBs, I know that you've vast experience in open wheelers. The thing that I remember standing in pit lane at Sandown that couple of years ago, and I remember talking to Tim Macro and Tom Randall um, and, and a couple of others, and when they got out and they said, you know, they're bloody hard to drive. And I thought that is so fantastic to hear because the last thing we needed was an easy car to drive, something that, you know, blokes could get into, you know, who had lots of money but not much experience. And I think that that sounds to me like what they should be doing with this next supercar. So thank you for joining us on Inside Supercars. It's been fantastic to hear such three experienced men with very different backgrounds but all with the common theme that you're all warriors of pit lane and I'm so pleased that we got you on the inside supercars to talk about your thoughts on this subject. It's obviously going to be one that keeps you and Trance 
for the next few years. Good on you, Tony. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Good chatting with you. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.